trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Welcome to Access to Excellence, and we're thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Wendy Manuel-Scott, Associate Professor in the School of Integrative Studies and the Director of African and African American Studies at George Mason University, and Dr. George Oberly, Mason's History Librarian and an expert on the papers of George Mason. Our two guests have been instrumental in Mason's efforts to erect a memorial honoring the more than 100 people enslaved by the university's namesake, George Mason. The memorial is scheduled to open on Mason's Fairfax campus in July 2021 and be part of a reconstructed Wilkins Plaza named for the late civil rights leader, Roger Wilkins, who was also a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and a Mason professor. Welcome to the show, Wendy and George. Hello, welcome. Thanks for having us. Hello. First of all, can you guys tell us and our listeners why this memorial is so significant? Thank you. Yeah, that's the, that's the question I think we get asked most often. And I think for me and I think for the team, what we believe is that memorialization of the enslaved people, of the enslaved men, women, children held by George Mason IV is really about memory making, about the practice of memory making. And it's in a way a kind of intellectual care work, right? I mean, it requires us to be attentive to the lives of the enslaved men, women, and children. And I think that it was important for us, for our students, to really attend to, to care for the enslaved men, women, and children who were held in perpetual, lifelong bondage at Gunston Hall. And and for us, we felt a deep sense of responsibility really for excavating their, their history and their history of loss and survival and resistance and resilience. And we wanted to to honor them. Why is it so important for both of you? Why is it so important that schools like George Mason and others really come to terms with their past? Well, it was it's really important to us because fundamentally it, it became important to our students and our colleague who couldn't be here today, Dr. Benedict Carton, uh, Dr. Manuel Scott and myself were being asked questions from students about the university's namesake. Especially, they, they heard stories that, well, he was a slaveholder, and this, this surprised them. And this, to, to me and my colleagues, meant that we had a responsibility to engage with them and to, to kind of start to tell this story because it connects with the things that they're interested in learning about and fundamentally this is what universities do best. Yeah, I just want to add on to what George, Dr. Oberly, has just mentioned, because I think it's so important to realize that the memorial, that this research really began with student inquiry. And in fact, we can go all the way back to really 2016, when students in the Honors College assembled a group of faculty and some folk from Gunston Hall to come talk to them about this question. Who was George Mason, this slaveholder? We haven't heard about it. We have 
haven't read about it. And so that was, I think, a really kind of key moment for us. And so by the time we got to 2017, when Dr. Benedict Carton and George and I, we decided to gather a group of students together to really flesh out some of these questions that students had started to bring to our attention back in 2016. So I think that makes the memorial and what we've done here at George Mason University so exceptionally unique because it began with student inquiry. Well, how much support have you guys gotten from the university in this effort? We've actually gotten a significant amount of support, um, especially it started with the Oscar program. And the Oscar program funded the five students and Dr. Carton and Manuel Scott to kind of lead an intensive research session where these five undergraduate students, only one of them was a historian, history major. They all read a graduate level of history resources in a very short amount of time, three weeks. And then once they had this trial by fire introduction to the history of the Mason family, to the history of slavery in Virginia and in the Chesapeake region, we set them loose based on the questions that they brought to the table. And their questions were far reaching and they were very focused on the kind of disciplinary domains that they came to the table with. I'll give you one example. Uh, Farhaj, who was a global health, I believe, he brought all these questions about well, what was the what was the diet like for enslaved people, and he also wanted to know how were they taken care of from the medical perspective, and so we started to explore those questions that they brought to the table, and once the university found out about this method, they were very excited, and the president at the time, Angel Cabrera, wanted to tell this story. And that has really helped us from that point to now. Uh, everybody has been so supportive. You know, the, the thing that's always struck me about this story, especially being somebody on the outside looking in, is the paradox you see here. What does it say about the contradictions between Mason's words and his decisions and actions? You know, that's a great question. And that's the one that historians have been grappling with for many years. And it's actually a good example of why history and studying history is really important. Ironically, there is no evidence that George Mason saw a contradiction between his words and his decisions and actions. George Mason's ideas on liberty were focused on individual liberty of those who were part of society. African and African-American slaves were not deemed as being part of that society and thus not deserving of those rights. Even in his famous Article 1 of Virginia Declaration of Rights, it says that all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights of which when they enter into the state of society, they cannot be compact, deprived, or divested of their posterity. And what he actually means in this first, this really important Declaration of Rights, is that first you have to belong to society, and then once you belong to society, Society, and if you did belong to society, your rights to own property 
are actually sacrosanct, and that is paramount over any moral objections to slavery. Wendy? No, I think that's that's spot on. And what I would, I guess, add, um, because we, throughout the research with the time with the research time with our students, we we wrestled with this, and we had many different conversations. And the only other kind of point I think I would make is that what we wanted to happen is that the memorial would recognize that we are, in fact, I think, tethered, right, tethered to an inescapable past. And so we invited our students and really the whole campus community to engage in an evidence-based dialogue that includes George Mason IV and the men, women, and children that he enslaved. And part of what that means for us is that we get the opportunity to think about what did freedom mean? What did liberty mean for the enslaved people? So yes, George Mason IV, as um, Dr. Oberly, I think, has so clearly articulated, yes, George Mason IV argued or offered a powerful vision of freedom, but at the same time, the people he enslaved also, I think we can argue, theorized about freedom, right? But of course, the way that they did this was through song or through cultural practices or through their acts of resistance. And we know from uh, advertisement for Runaways that George Mason had several individual individuals run away from Gunston Hall, right? So we know about Dick and Clem who ran away from Gunston Hall in the 1790s. And they ran away because they believed and wanted and desired freedom so that their black fugitivity also offers us an example of their physical expression of an embodied articulation of freedom. And so I think we are called to hold George Mason's articulation of freedom right alongside Dick and Clem's articulation of freedom. George? I, I completely agree with that. It's in, it's incredible that these stories haven't been told before. And what's also incredible is recognizing there was dissent amongst other white plantation owners as well at the same time. For example, in 1795, which is just three years after George Mason had, had died, Richard Randolph wrote a stunning will which condemned his patrimony and the hypocrisy of his, quote, countrymen by their inquisitive laws in contradiction of their own declaration of rights and in violation of every sacred law of nature. And then, unquote, and he goes on and he actually manumits all of his slaves and provides land in a form of early reparations, perhaps, to deal with this wrong that had been going on for generations by his ancestors. Wow, that's fascinating. I'd never heard that story. That's incredible. Can you tell me a little bit about what the monument is going to look like? Yay, that's a wonderful question, and I think one that really we are very proud of, the contribution of the students and the entire team that worked with us to design the memorial. And I think what makes the memorial unique, the enslaved people of George Mason Memorial, is that there are multiple components that are interacting with each other and bring to life the richness of the, the history and the stories that we think the community needs to, to know about. And so um, I'll let George say, say a little bit about the George Mason statue, but in addition to remaking or reimagining imagining the George Mason statue, we will have two panels. And one panel is about 
Penny, and it's an opportunity for us to think about Penny, an enslaved girl who came to Gunston Hall around the age of 10 to be a an essential caretaker of George Mason's daughter. And we are just kind of left with the heaviness, almost the the soul-killing heaviness of what it must have meant for Penny to be taken from her plantation home in Maryland to this new locality in Virginia. And so we offer visitors a brief history of Penny. And then on this panel, we also have the names of the enslaved children held at Gunston Hall, some of them as young as five years old. And there's an, the panel gives us kind of a silhouette of what we imagine Penny may have looked like. And in this silhouette, she is walking up a set of stairs. And this was done very intentionally by us because um, for those folk who have not had the opportunity to visit Gunston Hall, and we invite folk to do that, they will find that in addition to the large wide staircase that was available to the Mason family and their guest. Right to the left, there is what's often referred to as the servant staircase, but it was the staircase for enslaved people to use when they were in service to the Mason family. And so little Penny likely walked up and down this narrow and winding staircase to serve the family. And we wanted folk to really kind of situate themselves and imagine in, in a sense, the spatial dynamics of what it meant to be enslaved as a child and to sit with that and hold that. So in addition to the Penny panel, there's also a panel for James, the manservant of George Mason. And he was there by George Mason the fourth side for all of his needs, both in the morning and in the evening. And at times, he may have even likely helped to carry George Mason about, given George Mason's sometimes unhealthy conditions that he that he suffered from and so this panel offers a brief history of James and also includes the names of the enslaved men and women held at Gunston Hall and so I think those two panels both the Penny panel and the James panel give folk a sense of the enslaved people held at Gunston Hall but in addition a really exciting element is that with both of these panels you can stand back a bit from them place your feet on a marker in the the ground and you can look through these silhouettes and see the James Mason statue. And so we are then called to consider what was the relationship between the enslaved and the slaveholder? What was the dynamic between those who were slaves and those who were free men and free women? We are called to think about what is the dynamic between the past and the present? How are they tethered to each other? And so again, we've been very intentional in creating this kind of interactive space for students and visitors to consider. And in between the two panels, there's also a beautiful fountain. And in the base of that fountain, there are some stones that are placed in a cylindrical fashion to kind of mimic the religious, cultural practices that enslaved people often practice to maintain a sense of self, a sense of dignity, and a connection to their African heritage. And then I'll let George say a little bit about the statue itself. Sure. I'm happy to talk about the statue 
issue. It's funny, uh, in preparing for this podcast, I was uh, remembering my time as an undergraduate here at George Mason. And I remember when there was no image of George Mason on campus at all. The statue came along in around 1996, and it was a really big deal at the time. There was a lot of, there were a lot of students calling for some kind of connection to George Mason at that time, which I think is fascinating because now we have a different moment and there's different kinds of calls. Just to be clear, we never intended in our project to, to remove the statue. We saw it as an opportunity, but what we did see in the statue is it didn't provide any opportunity to contextualize the man, George Mason the man. There are these, these three books on a table, the books, uh, the bronze statue with it, these books with only like the author's names on the ends of the books. And one of them is Locke, which is absolutely right. He was very much influenced by Locke. But there's also Hume and Rousseau. And those are probably less important to George Mason, the man at the time, but they were included in the artist's depiction. What we did decide to do is we decided in, in the statue to use four quotes in, in, in a new base that would exemplify George Mason's life and, and who he was as a person. And choosing these items was a little difficult, uh, to be honest. One of them, we chose a selection from the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which was sort of a no-brainer, part of his public life, and certainly something that he should be remembered for. We also decided on one of them to go with another political action and statement as a quote, which is his famous, there is no Declaration of Rights, is one of his many, many objections to the new constitution that was being formed in 1787. We also thought it was crucial to add a different dimension of George Mason that typically is not talked about. And so we looked at his will and we 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 wanted to know, I mean, his will is kind of his last lasting ex, uh, lasting language of his legacy. And we decided to use this portion. I give and bequeath unto each of my four daughters, Anne Mason, Sarah Mason, Mary Mason and Elizabeth Mason, and to each of their heirs forever, the following slaves with their increase, respectively, from the date of this my will. I confirm a Negro girl named Penny to my daughter Anne. This was his last will and testament written in 1773, and this document was never changed. He, he kept this document uh, until his death. It was filed in 1792. The final quote that we added to the base is what I call his Frank Sinatra moment in my kind of more <laughs> joking around kinds of times. And let me just bear with me. I am truly conscious of having acted from the purest motives of honesty and love to my country, according to that measure of judgment which God has bestowed on me, and I would not forfeit the approbation of my own mind for the approbation of any man or all the men upon the earth. He wrote this to his son, John Mason, in 1789. This is the purest kind of statement of George Mason, which is purely stubborn in some ways, but in the good and the bad parts of stubbornness, right? I mean, it's an incredible statement of how he is a powerfully minded person who, once he decides he's going to take a stand, he sticks with it. So those are the, the, the statements that we believe best exemplify this man who is our namesake. 
week at the university. But as somebody, um, excuse me real quick, but as somebody who's on the outside, again, that's what I love because it makes it real. It makes he's a real man. You, you, you humanize the slaves, not just slaves. You mentioned Penny. You talk about how she's a 10-year-old little girl. That's something everybody can relate to, you know, and you put yourself in that position. You put your own child in that position. It makes it real and really brings the story home. So I, I commend you for doing that. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I think that's for all of us, the, the will in, in a very interesting way, right? We think about archives, but it it brought to life the enslaved people that we were searching for. There they were identified as as inheritable property. And in fact, I think one of the other kind of profound aha moments that we had along with our students is that in that will and testament that Dr. Oberly just read to us, the excerpt includes this idea that George Mason is bequeathing Penny and the other enslaved people, not just in their current life, but also any person that they would have in the future. So he is bequeathing to his children the generational value, right, that they would bring to the Mason children. And that to me is just so, I think to all of us, it's just so profound because what it means is that George Mason IV understood, one, that human property was an essential form of wealth, right, but that it was an essential form of reproductive wealth, generational wealth. And so using that language, I think, really holds I think we have to hold it and to really consider what that meant, what we think about that and what that means for us and whether or not that shifts how we think about the past and perhaps even the present. How did the project start and how instrumental were some of the students? Yes, the students, the students. So (laughs) let me just let me just give them like the ultimate Dr. Manuel Scott shout out. So there was Alexis Bracey, the global affairs major, Kai Farrow, our sole history major, and and she's now a graduate student. And Amen Fatima, a government and international politics and systems engineering major, proof that anybody and everybody can find something really interesting and dynamic to study in terms of history. And then also Elizabeth Perez, a criminology, law, and society student. And then last but absolutely not least, we have Farhaj Murshed, applied statistics and also doing some work around community health. So it, I think just looking at the disciplines, the majors of our students, it's a perfect example of really who we are as an institution, George Mason University, because what it showcases, one is this institutional support that we were able to receive through Oscar, our Office for Student Research, but also the incredible interdisciplinary nature of the work, that our project actually shines because we didn't just have a historian working with us or a history major, but we had students from multiple dis- different disciplines, also um, different backgrounds and experiences, and they brought the wealth of their disciplines and of their experiences to the project, which I think made it stronger, made it better, because we were able to assemble such a dynamic group of students and really showcase, I think, the best of who we are as an institution when we say we are diverse, right? We really see that showing up in terms of the five students we were able to assemble for the 2017 Summer Oscar Project. You know, it's, it's been interesting the last few years as schools like say UVA, North Carolina really grapple with with their past. When bringing this topic up, did you find that it made people uncomfortable somewhat just to even look at or just kind of talk about? And if so, how did you kind of overcome that? Okay, I'll start and we'll see where we go. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I, I think some of this Dr. Oberly touched on earlier on, which is when we began the project in the summer of 2017 with the students, we had a, a very brief conversation about what were we trying to accomplish. And for the students, and I think for Dr. Oberly, Dr. Benedict Cart, and for myself, we were focused on centering the lives of the enslaved children. And the, the, their summer project, in fact, was entitled Enslaved Children of George Mason. And so that was really the focus of the questions. And they eventually kind of broadened out from that. But the goal was to make seen, to make visible the lives of enslaved people at Gunston Hall. And it was, in many ways, it was not focused on trying to remove George George Mason, the man from our institution, but rather complicate our understanding of George Mason, the man. And then the other, I think, critical component to think about that sets George Mason University up as different than other institutions is that we do not have a direct connection to slavery or to enslaved people laboring on our campus. So unlike a UVA where enslaved people were literally serving food and caring for students or a Georgetown where enslaved people were actually sold when the institution found itself in financial distress or a school like William & Mary, they all have very specific histories tied to slavery. Mason is young, 1972. And so I think that also gave us an opportunity and a space to do this messy work of memory making that other institutions find that the journey is a lot more complicated and perhaps fraught with uh, <laughs> some challenges that, that we didn't necessarily right have to encounter. And and then the third component, I think, to answer your question is that, again, I'll go back to the idea that this began with student research. Right. Did you find that your research at all has affected the way George Mason has been perceived, both here on campus and beyond? That I don't really know. But what I can speak to, and, and I hope this will make some sense, is that it's changed the way I think about George Mason University. The university has been so accepting of the idea of exploring the past that I've actually changed all of my courses. So I teach for the Department of History and Art History, and I teach the methods course as well as the senior seminar. And I also teach for the Honors College. And all of my courses now are focused on the idea of doing research around the broad notion of the legacies of George Mason. And when we say the legacies of George Mason, what what I mean and what my colleagues who are helping me form a research center that is looking at, at this issue. And we are being intentional in being broad, not just looking at the man, but looking at George Mason and his family, for one. His family has a long legacy. There were three other George Masons before him that were in Virginia that were doing various interesting things. And then his family continued on after him. And some of them were involved in the Civil War and guess which side. And uh, there were long lasting implications for the decisions being made by George Mason and people like George Mason, who is just, in a way, a placeholder for, as a founding father. And so, and there are many of them in this region. And this gives students an opportunity to explore these long-lasting legacies of issues such as 
slavery, but also the issues of race that are ongoing that we see every day in our news. And we also want to engage and explore the history of the university itself. We now think of George Mason University rightly as a very diverse institution, among the most diverse in the country, right? However, there was a time when African Americans were not a not it wasn't official but they had a very difficult time being admitted into George Mason and there were several reports on this matter and many suggestions on how to fix the problem of why only two or three African Americans were actually attending the college and university and this is in the 70s uh, late 60s and early 70s and we and some of my students now are exploring these questions so it's not just about the colonial or the time kind of issue that a lot of our research seminars kind of focus on. We want to know more about these early African-American students here. We want to do interviews with them. We want to find their histories. Even if we can't, we would love to find the enslaved, the actual descendants of the enslaved people at Gunston Hall. Maybe we can, maybe we can't. I mean, it's a real difficult issue, to be honest. And I am in the archives all the time looking for them as our two graduate students who work for me. However, we can find these people who were our alum who did kind of experience these very difficult situations in our early history and we can share their story and and try to heal and provide the opportunities for healing I think that's that's exactly it the idea of healing right and of restoration and that's deeply embedded into the research and into the memorial itself. And in many ways, I think we all see and understand the memorial as really a beginning, right? It does not symbolize the completion of our work, but rather an invitation to students and to our community to continue to do the research, to continue to ask even the uncomfortable questions and and to continue to be willing to sit in dialogue around the messiness of the past and the present. And I think that is what it guides it guides us the idea of restoration of repair of trauma whether that's trauma from colonial legacies or whether that's trauma from the 1970s how do we repair that how do we heal that and what role does the academy have what role might researchers have in doing that repair work so it, it almost makes me think about a restorative or a type of research, a restorative type of pedagogy that we are all involved in doing. And that is so, I don't know, it gives me chills. I think it's so critical and meaningful. And it really brings to life, I think, what we do in the classroom with our students and who we are as, as faculty. You know what I love just talking to you guys? You both, the passion which you have for this project is just obvious to anybody who talks to you, and I love that. And that's, you put your heart and soul to, into this project, and I can tell it's, it's a project labor of love. So I appreciate you. Um, that will do it for us today, but I want to thank you both, Dr. Wendy Manuel Scott, Dr. George Oberly, for joining us today, and for their tireless efforts in honoring the enslaved people of George Mason. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D-C-R-I-S-T-O-D at gmu.edu. 